Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, my name is Brandon Freemian, and uh, I am on staff at the church, and I'm also the church's pastoral candidate. So today we are continuing in our series, Servant King, where we are going through the Gospel of Mark, and in particular, going through the Gospel of Mark with a lens of seeing what it has to teach us about how we serve with joy in our places of calling and giftedness, both by looking at who we serve in the person of Jesus, as well as looking at how he served during his time on earth. Uh, Today we are going to be in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now, up to this point in Mark, we have been seeing Jesus living into the trifold ministry that he had of preaching, teaching, and healing. Uh, We see him preaching, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. We see him teaching the ways of the kingdom and then healing as a demonstration of the power of the kingdom and the power of God. And we've seen a number of those stories in the last couple of chapters where Jesus' power has been on display in some pretty mighty ways. We've seen him calm the waves. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him even raise the dead. Today, we're going to be pressing a little bit more into the teaching ministry of Jesus. So we're going to read about in Mark 7, Jesus' confrontation with some of the scribes and the Pharisees that have come to visit him from Jerusalem. And when Jesus teaches the word of God, it often serves as a kind of mirror for those that he's talking to a way for them to sort of look into that mirror, the mirror of the word of God, and see a little bit of what they look like, what their heart looks like in that reflection. And we're going to see him do that today, first for the Pharisees and the scribes, and then for his disciples. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark 7, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, With some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, 
but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, to look a little bit first at the big picture of what's having narratively, um, we saw last week that Jesus is beginning to face increasing opposition. Daca preached on when Jesus went back to his hometown and was not received well by his family and his neighbors. They talked about how, well, we know, we know his family, we know his brothers, we know his sisters, and they didn't believe in him. And they opposed his work that he was doing. We are seeing here in chapter 7 that escalating even more. So here in verse 1 we see, Now that when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now remember Jesus at this time is up in Galilee. So Jesus is starting to draw attention. He's bringing bigger and bigger crowds to him. In the previous chapter you had the feeding of the 5,000 where 5,000 men along with women and children are there listening to Jesus and ultimately have to be fed because they're hungry. But there's also just the reality that Jesus is starting to draw some big crowds. And the religious authorities are starting to pay attention. And so they have sent some scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem to find out what this Jesus is all about. And we're going to see in the coming chapters that this is going to escalate further and further, and he is going to be opposed more and more by the religious leaders of his day ultimately leading in the cross. But here, they come to Jesus and they have an accusation. They say, your disciples are eating with unwashed hands and are not following the tradition of the elders. Now, to understand what's happening here, we need to do a little bit of a rewind to the Old Testament because this is not just about whether you should wash your hands before you eat, which incidentally is a good idea. <laughs> But this is not about whether you should eat in a hygienic way. This actually is going back to Old Testament law. Right? In the Old Testament, there are these laws about clean and unclean things. And many aspects of the Old Testament law designated things as clean or unclean. To use an example, animals. There were certain animals, you can sort of think in the biggest circle, that were considered unclean. And these were the animals that they were not allowed to eat. And then there was a smaller set of animals that was clean animals. And there was actually a, that they were allowed to eat. And there was even a smaller subset that were used for sacrifice. You could eat them, but they were also used in the midst of worshiping God. So there was unclean, clean, and sort of these sacrificial animals. Uh, another way that you can see this play out is actually even in the way God ordered them to do their physical space. So when God had his people come out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert. He gave commands to them about how they were supposed to set up their camp. And it was actually configured in much the same way. There was outside the camp, which was kind of unclean. 
There was the camp where they camped in a big circle that was the place that was supposed to be clean. And then at the very center of it was the tabernacle, the place of worship. And even in there, there was one room, the Holy of Holies, where God was supposed to dwell. And then that was where they did the worship of God. So their whole physical space was sort of oriented around God at the center. And that was part of the role of these Old Testament cleanliness laws. They ordered the the Jewish mind, the Jewish world to have God at the center. That was the purpose of these cleanliness laws, at least in part, was this orientation towards God is supposed to be at the center. The worship of God is supposed to be at the middle of everything that they did. And these laws also had a, a role in being set apart. God's people were supposed to be set apart for particular purposes. And you actually kind of see this in some of the, the ways they would use particular, there were particular uh, like goblets and things like that that they would use in temple worship. And they would make sure to wash these, that they were clean, they were set apart for a purpose. And these were also the way that God's people were supposed to be. They were supposed to be set apart for the things of God, that God had a purpose for his people to be a blessing to the nations. He had a purpose for his people to live in a particular way that glorified him so that when people looked in, and at the people of God, they would understand who he was and want to worship him too. And so these laws were designed to set them apart. You can sort of think of it like if, you know, your grandmother gave you the fine china, you don't then go and use that to start digging up the garden, right? Like there is a particular purpose for which things have been set apart. And God said, you're, you're my people, you are set apart. And he gave the, the Old Testament Jews a, the law to help set them apart. But what had happened over time is that people had added to that. They had said, well, yeah, there's the commands of God, but we really want to make sure we don't mess up that standard. So we're going to create something even even more strict, something more that we can do beyond what the commandment of God is. That may have been with good intention, the sense of, okay, well, we really don't want to mess this up, so we're going to create something even further. And this became what known as In the text, the tradition of the elders, these extra traditions that had been added on to the Old Testament law that were supposed to help keep them from violating God's commandments. So these laws around washing were a part of that. They were a part of this tradition of the elders that was sort of external to the Old Testament law, but was supposed to be helping you follow it. Now, There's a problem, though. And Jesus, after they have come and accused him of saying, hey, you guys are not following the tradition of the elders, Jesus comes back at them with some accusations of his own. And he says a couple things. First, he says that in verse 7, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So evidently, this tradition of the elders had started to take on a weight of that this was actually God's commands as well. So the Pharisees and the scribes had begun teaching that these extra things were actually God's commands. They took the things that were commands of men and made them commands of God. The second accusation Jesus makes of them is that they had begun to leave the commands of God in favor of the commands of men. This is verse 8. You leave the commandments of God and hold the traditions of men. So evidently there was something that not only were they teaching this, But in their own hearts, they had come to have a preference 
for some of these traditions. They had started to have a preference for the things that man had made up rather than the things that God had actually said. The third accusation is that they had manipulated the law to their own advantage. And this is in verses 9 through 13 where Jesus talks about Corbin. Now this one's a little bit obscure. And for time's sake, I'm not going to go a lot into what Corbin exactly is. But the Cliff's Notes version is that there was a way of designating part of your wealth to Corbin, which basically meant that you were designating it as a gift to God that still allowed you some way, somehow, to have access to use it. And there were some people who had the responsibility for caring for their elderly parents, but were not particularly interested in doing so and wanted to make sure that their wealth got protected from having to use it to take care of their parents. And so they would say, that amount of money that I would have used to take care of you is now Corbin, thereby avoiding having to take care of their parents. If that sounds kind of diabolical, it kind of is. (laughs) And Jesus rightly points it out. He says, you guys are using these traditions to violate the law, to violate the command to honor your father and mother. And so these are kind of the big three things. He comes back at the, at the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, look, you're teaching these commandments like they're God's commands. You prefer them to God's commands, and you're actually using them to try and override God's commands. Now, At the end of the day, then, what does he say about them? He says in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. What he ultimately accuses them of is that there is a mismatch going on between what you are doing and what is actually going on in your heart. On the outside appearance, they appear to care deeply about the things of God, but on the inside, they are actually far from him. He quotes Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They're doing one thing, their hearts are in another place, and because of that, their worship, he says, is vain. Now remember that what we said one of the purposes of the law was, was that it was supposed to orient you towards God as at the center. It was supposed to help create in you a heart that was centered on God. And what he seems to be saying is that these traditions and their keeping of these traditions had done the exact opposite. It had reoriented their hearts to have these traditions, to have these external religious activities be at the center instead. And because of that, it was an idol. It was something they were worshiping other than God. And Jesus holds the mirror up to the scribes and the Pharisees and shows them their heart, that it's far from God. Now, I think this is important for us as well because there is much that we can do as Christians that is also just a matter of practice. Right? There is a lot that we do that is not laid out as commands of God, but that we do as a matter of practice. Things like keeping a quiet time, studying particular things, practicing particular disciplines, how we do worship, how we do corporate life together. You know, when I was growing up, there was a big emphasis and a lot of talk about how Christians should date. There were books about this, right? 
Now, these things, I want to be clear, I'm not holding up as bad things, right? These can be very good things. They can be very helpful things to have. I, I support having a quiet time of having a daily time of getting into the word of God. We, we should have some things that we regularly do together as a body. These things are not intrinsically wrong, but we have to be on guard on exactly what is happening to the scribes and the Pharisees, that those things can make a play for our heart and start to become the central things, that the matter of our practice, the matter of our religious activity can move from being the thing that points us to God to being the thing that now has captured our hearts. And something else ends up taking the place of God. I was thinking about this with regards to our theme for the year of serving in our place of calling and giftedness. I was thinking about, you know, service can be one of those things too. Our service can be one of the things that begins to take the place at the center of our heart because it can be the place where we start to feel like this is what gives me value in the eyes of God or this is what is, this is my calling, this is the thing I'm supposed to be about when ultimately those things too, the ways we serve God, are supposed to flow out of a heart that is centered on him and ultimately is also supposed to be flowing towards leading us towards a heart that is centered on him. So even in the midst of pursuing service, we have to make sure that it's about our love and our worship of God. And I actually think that one of the things that happens when we no longer have a heart that is close to God in the midst of our service, is that can be one of the things that causes our service to lose joy. Because it no longer is about a love and a flourishing relationship with God and a worship of him, but starts to be about other things that are much more about who we are and and our identities and how we feel about ourselves. And that is a dark place (laughs) to live. So this is the first mirror that Jesus holds up to the scribes and the Pharisees, which is this mirror of religious activity and self-righteousness. In the second part, we see him hold up a mirror to his disciples. Verses 14 through 23 is kind of Jesus' corrective. So the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching these commands of men as the commands of God. And so you see Jesus setting the record straight here. He calls the people together and he teaches them that what you put in yourself is not what defiles you. He talks about basically what you eat or whether you eat with washed hands or not. This is not what defiles you in the eyes of God. And he uses, you know, pretty sound logic. He's like, you know, if you, if you eat something, what happens? It goes into your stomach and it's expelled, right? It does not ultimately affect the heart. But what does, he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And then he gives us a list of sins. He talks about sexual morality, which is sort of a general term for all kinds of sexual sin. And he includes adultery in there. How we handle wealth and our desire for possessions. He talks about theft. He talks about coveting what we desire and whether we desire things from others. He talks about how we treat others dispositions of pride and envy. He talks about being truthful and kind with our words. He talks about not slandering, not deceiving. Like all of these things are ways that we can live that show a disdain for the things that God cares about. 
These are the things, he says, that defile. So we should be very careful to not think from the first half of this this section that when he talks to the, the scribes and the elders about not following the tradition of the elders, that doesn't mean that he is somehow abandoning the commands of God. Right? He is still teaching, no, there are things that God has asked of us because they are the way of life that leads to life. And so Jesus is holding up the mirror of God's commandments here to his disciples and saying, these are things that defile you, and these are things that are not just about the actions, but they are also things that indicate that we have a heart that is far from God. So I almost think of it as the two ditches of the heart, right? There's sort of the narrow way where our heart is truly centered on God and we are living out of that in all that we do. And there are these two ditches that we tend to want to fall into. One is that of religious activity, the things that we can do, these externalities that can start to take on a life of their own and become the center. But on the other side, there's also still the temptations of to, to pull away from God. And at both of these ditches are about the heart and the fact that our hearts are no longer close to God. And Jesus seems to be saying here that if these things are in your life, you don't just have a problem with your actions. There is actually something that that is indicating about the disposition of your heart. So what do we do with this? Because I think here Jesus is holding up both of these mirrors to us as well. One hope is that I have is that as we look into these mirrors, that it would cause us to evaluate a little bit of what is the disposition of our own hearts. Right? Is there, one, is there a sin in our life, either in the forms of activities that he talks about here at the end, or even in the form of these religious activities that have come to take a center point in our life, is our heart truly close to God? And this can be a hard thing to really be honest with ourselves about, but I think this passage calls us to that, to really take a hard look at the practices of our lives and say, what does this say about my heart and whether it is close to God or not? My hope is, is that in the midst of that, that you would have a longing to return back to God and to have that heart again that is close to him. I, other, I think the other thing, though, that, that these mirrors at least do for me is to point out our own insufficiency in these things, right? The recognition that our hearts are, are so disposed to go into these ditches that we feel a sense of that, how would I ever do this? And I think that is where we have to look straight into the gospel and recognize that we have a need for a cleanness, we have a need for a righteousness, we have a need for a change of heart that cannot come just through our own willpower and our own change of things. Like we need Jesus to do something in us. It is on the other side of faith in him that we find a heart that desires to seek the things of God and it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit bringing to mind the things of Jesus that will ultimately lead to real heart change in us. And so I want to be very clear about something that the, the response, if we look in these mirrors and we recognize, man, my heart is far from God, is not try harder. The response is turn to Jesus in repentance and ask him to change your heart. 
because he has the power to do so. So I'd like to give us a couple minutes of just quiet. And if there's anything that God has brought to your mind in the midst of looking in these two mirrors, I would like to give you the opportunity to just bring those before him in repentance and ask him to restore a heart that is close to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bring before you now, Lord, all the ways that our hearts are distant from you. Lord, whether those are areas of sin or other things that have come to take your place at the center, we confess those things to you now. We pray, God, that you would bring us back to a heart of worship, a heart of having you at the center. I pray that you will give us a longing for that if we don't have it. Lord, we need you to do this work in us. We recognize our hearts are so inclined to seek our own ways. We look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith with great hope and the knowledge that in you we can find forgiveness and restoration. All these things we pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.